Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring their insights to you. In this episode, we're going to explore the very powerful pro-social work of Alison Zelkowitz. Alison founded the Center for Utilizing Behavioral Insights for Children. And if you take the first letters of all of that, it spells out cubic, <laughs> yep. C-U-B-I-C. And that is a uh, division within the International Relief Organization, Save the Children. Hers is the first behavioral insights initiative or nudge unit in the world to focus on the most marginalized children's rights and welfare. Yeah, it's very cool work, Kurt. And with the help of behavioral science, Cubic is positively shaping the behaviors of policymakers, educators, families, and communities in order to help children get the best possible start in life. And we were introduced to Allison by her friend from the Becerra Institute, Channing Jang, who we featured in episode 202. And he talked about how he and his fellow scientists are working on ways to eliminate poverty where it is. Uh, the worst in the world. And the episode follows on a tradition of discussing behavioral science with innovators and in nonprofits and charitable institutions over the past couple of years. Yeah, very true, Kurt. If you're interested in more discussions about how to apply behavioral science to nonprofits, check out episodes like the development of GABS in episode 209 or Cornelia Walter's Pose Theory in episode 190. Nicole Fisher-Roberts talked about DEI and protesters in episode 168. Shlomi Ron talked about using storytelling to help get people out of poverty in episode 165. Mariel Beasley on helping poor families in the U.S. increase their savings rates in episode 146. Iris Zavir uh, talked about the power of kind words in episode 139. Terry Esau on the impact of giving bikes to kids in episode 73. Rob Burnett on positively impacting unwanted pregnancies in Nairobi in episodes 19 and 20. And then most recently, Tim Kachuriak talked about how to maximize fundraising in episode 221. Okay. So, so wow. First off, that's a lot, Tim, <laughs> but I didn't think you were going to go through the whole list. Do you think we might just maybe have cognitively overloaded people with all of that information? Um. I think you might be right. <laughs> um, but there's lots of good stuff that we shared. I just want to make sure that, you know, that people know what's available in the back catalog. All right. So I'm assuming all of these episodes will be in the show notes, right? Right? Yeah. Right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Because it's an awful lot to take in when you're pulling weeds or taking your dog for a walk or even sitting down with a cocktail at the end of the day, listening uh, to behavioral <laughs> grooves. Uh, you bet. Well, 100% will be referenced. Thanks to our latest addition to the team, Mary Califf. <gasps> I am so glad you brought her up, Tim, because Mary has been a kick-ass addition to the team. <laughs> and hopefully you've noticed that we've improved from the quality of our show notes that mm -hmm. obviously she helps with to the questions that we ask, because she helps in doing some of the research with our guests, yeah, to yeah. making sure that our social media actually talks about the shows that are happening this week, not like when I did it and they were about <laughs> shows that were weeks, weeks ago or maybe even yeah. months ago, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and we were able to hire Mary because of the generous donations and sponsorships from people like you who listen to and love our podcast. And so we want to invite you to help us keep Mary's position at Behavior Grooves by subscribing to our Patreon site or simply making a, a direct donation to our cause or connecting us with a company that might benefit from sponsoring us. And we would yeah. be open to any of those. And we're very grateful for that. Absolutely. And thank you to all of you who are already subscribing to our Patreon page. And, and by the way, you know, even though Allison works for a nonprofit and she lives in Southeast Asia, she is a monthly subscriber to Behavioral Grooves on our Patreon site. So thank you to Allison. Thank you, Allison. Okay, Tim, now it's time to invite our listeners to sit back, relax, and with a fine pour of pro-social spirits, enjoy our conversation with Allison Zelkowitz. Allison Zelkowitz, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we are so darn glad to have you. We're going to start with a speed round. And Kurt, you want to get started with a speed round? 
that you want me to start, Tim? Are you sure? Well, how about how about that? Well, okay. I mean, let's try something I can, different. I can start, you know, if you, you really think so. All right, Allison, we're going to ask you the tough question first. Coffee or tea? Coffee, absolutely. Cappuccino? Cappuccino even. Oh, very specific coffee. All right, okay. there we go. Okay, would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite researcher, athlete, or musician? So I thought about this one for a long time. It definitely might well, How could you do that? You, you, this is a speed round question. <laughs> because we ask the damn the same speed round questions all the time, Tim. Come on. Exactly. Right. Okay, sorry. Yes. Athlete. And it's uh, Eliud Kipchoge from Kenya. He's the world's greatest marathoner. He actually has run a marathon in under two hours. Uh, and I got to see him run in, in the London Marathon in 2019. I mean, he ran, ran very fast. I saw him for about five seconds. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm just inspired. I used to run marathons in my in my youth, and he runs basically twice as fast as I ever ran. Isn't it? It's amazing when wow. you see top marathoners and mm. they're sprinting. It it really feels like they're sprinting when they're going mm -hmm. past you. You're going, I, I can't run that fast for a hundred meters, yet much less you know twenty six miles. So exactly, and they look so calm, like it's not even difficult for them. I, I, it's uh, they're they're amazing to me, and I always say, you know, I know you you were a marathoner, but you know, the first marathoner died uh, after he ran that twenty six <laughs> miles. He made the, the the note to marathon, and then subsequently died. So I am not going to be trying marathoning from anything here. All right, okay, back to the back to the speed rounds. Would you prefer a beach in Southeast Asia or a beach in Central Maine? Oh, definitely a beach in Southeast Asia. Um, Central Maine is so cold. Even, I'm sure you know, even in the summer, it's frigid. So a beach in Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, all the way. Yeah, But you, you don't like the rocky shoreline of, of Maine with that kind of, you know, rustic look? Is that, yeah, rustic it, is probably not the right word, but. It's very romantic, but I prefer comforts. <laughs> <laughs> Check. <laughs> yeah, check. Yeah, got got that one. Okay, so Allison, what do you think is riskier? Canoeing, hiking, or skydiving? <laughs> Definitely canoeing or hiking, actually. I can I can tell tell you that for a fact because I looked it up uh because I'm a skydiver. <laughs> yes, you are a skydiver. We're gonna come back to that in in, in a little while. Well, we can come back to that right now because oh. I think it's really interesting. This idea of of so tell us how did you get into skydiving and let's hear let's hear that story first. Yeah, well, it was definitely um, a system one decision about skydiving. I was uh, I was working in in Pakistan actually at the time, and some uh, friends of mine told me that they were going to Spain and they were going to rent motorcycles and uh, they were going to take some skydiving lessons and did I want to come? And I was a motorcycle rider, so that sounded great. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll do the skydiving as well. So I just went with them and I can tell you, after that first jump, I could not believe I had to do it 18 more times because I'd signed up for this full course and it was just shocking that I had to go through it. But I ended up by, uh, by jump four, I was uh, taken with it and now I absolutely love it. Well, oh, and you wow. bought a, what, a lifetime pass, like a 20 year commitment to skydiving? <laughs> Is that correct? Exactly. There's um, the United States Parachute Association has basically a gold card that allows you to be a member for life. And so, yes, I bought that to make sure that I would uh, stay skydiving for my entire life, more or less. Was that a system one or a system two decision? That was definitely system two. Yes, I had to think long okay. and hard. I won't tell you how much it costs. You can look it up, but it was quite expensive for me, especially, you know, nine or 10 years ago. So I did have to think about it quite a bit. <laughs> Interesting. Fantastic. So uh, skydiving, much safer than canoeing or hiking, which are the two activities that I do. Not, I don't do the, the, the skydiving. I'm going to I'm gonna have to have a little chat with George Lowenstein about that one. Like, oh, <laughs> why the hell aren't you doing something safer like skydiving when you're out hiking all the time? So. Well, Allison, tell us a little bit about um, your work. So you, you are running a behavioral science team inside of uh, a global uh, 
nonprofit, Save the Children. So why don't you start with Save the Children? What, what's the, what is Save the Children? Yes, Save the Children is one of the world's oldest organizations um, campaigning and working toward working for children's rights. Uh, we're over 100 years old now, uh, and we work to ensure that children survive, learn, and are protected, and we focus on the most marginalized children around the world. So right now we're working in about 120 countries with about 25,000 staff, and I've been working with them for about 13 years now, actually. Wow. It's interesting. Uh, when I was looking at the map, it, it just uh, surprised me the number of countries that, that you're in that, that uh, Save the Children is, is really looking very broadly. And, and by the way, doesn't exclude the United States or the UK. You know, um, you know uh, first world countries uh, have issues with, with vulnerable kids as well, right? Absolutely. Yes, there's, there's vulnerable children in every country in the world. Yeah, that, that's incredible. So you've, you've been with Save the Children for like 13 years. So how do you, you actually uh, were the brainchild behind, uh, behind the group, behind, behind the behavioral science team that you created, uh, Cubic. And, and, and so tell us a little bit about what was the journey that you went through to, to sort of hatch the idea and then persuade leadership that this is a good idea. And, and then to actually I mean, we can go all the way through the, the projects that you're working on now because you've got projects funded all around the world now. So, so, but start with what was, how, how did the, the idea come to you? Sure. Well, it's kind of a long journey. Um, so I first encountered the behavioral insights approach when I was the country director in Thailand. And we were working on developing a program to encourage children to wear helmets because road crashes are actually the, the number one cause of injury for children in Thailand, as well as the number two cause of death. The, the number one cause of death is actually drowning. Um, but we really wanted to focus on getting children to wear helmets, because if you've be ever been to many countries in Southeast Asia, you'll see that often um, a parent is actually wearing a helmet, but they've got the children on the back and they are not. So we thought this was, this seemed crazy. <laughs> So what could we do to encourage children to wear helmets? So um, during this process of designing the program, I met a um, behavioral insights uh, consultant uh, and advisor uh, named Chris Eldridge. And I started talking to him about this, um, this whole realm of research and insights. And I just thought it was fascinating. And I was a, li a little bit, um, I was just so surprised that I hadn't heard of it before. And I realized how much value it would have to save the children um, because human behavior is a key part of absolutely everything that we do. Um, so I started working with him and we designed this uh, toolkit to encourage children to wear helmets um, in Thailand. And the toolkit used a number of behavioral principles. Um, for example, what we had public commitments. So the children would write on this uh, tree leaf, something like, I want to wear a helmet be, um, because I want to be an astronaut someday, or I want to wear a helmet because I love my mother. And then they'd paste that, paste that publicly in the school. Um, we had other tools such as, for example, we utilized salience by showing what would happen if you don't wear a helmet. For example, there's this um, watermelon exercise <laughs> where you have, um, you have a teacher and two children and they're standing in front of a group and one of them has just a watermelon and the other one has a watermelon with a helmet on it. And so they're standing on this box and they both drop the watermelons and you see the one with the, the one with the helmet on it just bounces and the one without the helmet splatters. And there's this, you know, red watermelon goo everywhere. Um, so this tends to be very, very memorable for both children and, uh, and parents. One of the other tools that we used for children was uh, reducing the hassle factor or friction. For example, one challenge that children would have is if they would bring their helmet to school, there was actually nowhere to put it. And so a kid doesn't want to carry a helmet around all day. So we built um, helmet containers for them to put their helmets in. Another thing that we did was... Um, uh, we wanted to create a sense of ownership over their helmets so that they would like them more. So I guess you could say either Ikea effect or endowment effect. So we um, encourage children basically to, to draw on or paint on their helmets. So we would have these kind of white helmets that they can then decorate and, and be proud of. Um, so, yeah, th this, this was kind of my first um, interaction with the behavioral insights approach. And I just thought it was fascinating. And I, I guess I fell in love. 
So, Allison, it seems the 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 interventions that you did there seem relatively like they could happen even without a behavioral science intervention, right? Dropping the dropping the 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 watermelon into on, on different pieces, um, but obviously that wasn't necessarily being used. So, what would have been the the old way of kind of looking at uh, solving the problem of of getting children to wear? Helmets. How how would uh, Save the Children or maybe other large organizations typically would have done that prior to thinking more from a behavioral science perspective? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons I started and founded Cubic was because often in international international aid work, and not always, but often, um, our you know very well intentioned teams around the world um, design programs assuming that if we simply provide people really good information. <laughs> They will change their behavior. So, so of course, you know, th- this usually doesn't work with adults and it certainly doesn't work with children either. <laughs> often. So, so yeah, tra- a traditional program probably would have been, you know, simply showing them how to wear the helmet. And these are the reasons to do it, to protect yourself. So please do it. And we're going to try to make sure that you do do it. Um, yeah. And of course we did, we did show children how to wear them because you do have to actually, there, there's even simple steps about how to wear it, how to wear it tightly. You do have to do these things, but you have to do a lot more as well. That's cool. So it, it wasn't like you were foregoing the the formality and the traditional approach for learning of just give people the facts and, and of course they'll, they'll act on it. You, you, you did incorporate those, but you went well beyond that. Okay. So, so you, you, you start with, with this project to get kids wearing helmets. First of all, what kind of results did you get? Mm. So I was in Thailand from about 2013 to 2016. And I think it was in 2015 that we started piloting this approach. Uh, And it was basically, um, you know, now that I am working in the behavioral science field, I recognize that what we did was a quasi-experimental trial. (laughs) So I know some people feel uh, don't feel so good about the the word quasi, um, but it was the best that we could do at the time. Um, So basically, we had uh, six pilot schools and six uh, control schools. Um, uh, I, I would say definitely quasi because they weren't that well randomly selected, but we did it. We did compare them and we did um, what I, what I was quite proud of is we, um, we really observed helmet wearing and we observed helmet wearing, I think it was about four, four times over a course of about five months. So before mm. the intervention and then after a month or two, and then after a few more months, uh, and we, we observed this um, with another organization called Thai Roads Foundation and they actually filmed children um, being dropped off at school as well as being picked up at school. So they could actually count who was wearing helmets and who were not. Um, so basically from, again, from baseline to um, the last observation during that program period of a few months, we were able to see, for example, an average jump in the pilot schools from around, I think it was around 10 to 28%, um, which we were quite happy with. And we didn't see those in what we were calling the control schools. Um, There was very minimal um, increase there. Um, That being said, another finding that we had is we also, um, we also observed right after the program had been completed, which I think after maybe, I don't remember exactly, but I think maybe four or five months after it had been completed and realized that it hadn't yet stuck. Mm. So people were back to their old behaviors, but it did, I mean, it informed our future programs thinking, okay, well, this was just designed as a one semester intervention. It has to be longer. We need to be working with schools and we need to be working with children for longer than just one semester. Yeah, it's fascinating when you when you actually take a look at the data and then you start uh, analyzing it and and understanding some of those those factors, which I think is some part of the behavioral science uh way of of looking at problems as opposed to let's just give them a, a pamphlet that says here's here's how to um, do that so tell us about then in or building cubic into save the children because that was your first kind of utilization of behavioral science so now you're thinking about this now what happens yeah so after i left Tha- uh, thailand i moved to lebanon and i was the country director there And Lebanon has one of the most severe refugee crises in the world. Um, I think it's about 1.5 million 
Syrian refugees in a country with approximately 4 million Lebanese. <laughs> so it's, it's a huge number of refugees there. And so when I was the country director there, honestly, for the first um, couple years, all I cared, was, cared about was managing this intense humanitarian program, as well as um, having my first child. So I, I would say during that time, oh I didn't God. think... <laughs> Didn't think too much about, um, about uh, okay, behavioral insights then. I knew we weren't doing it and we weren't incorporating it, but I was like, okay, we're too busy just implementing these humanitarian programs. But there were a few times during that, for example, I, w- I remember a couple times that I was in these global meetings and there would be some challenge that we were looking at. And it'd be like, you know, I think Save the Children needs to start our own nudge unit. <laughs> and people would say, okay, mm. what's a nudge unit? And I would explain. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we would put it on the board. Oh, yes, nudge unit. Okay, good idea. And then, you know, that would be done. Um, so I was, it was kind of thinking about it. Um, and then I think it was about after two years in Lebanon that I started thinking about what would be the next step for me. And what I really wanted to um, focus on in terms of my my future career, and at this point, um, you know, there's a lot of wonderful things about being a country director. Um, you know, great great relationships with amazing staff. You know, that are really committed to to helping children. Um, really dynamic, crazy, complex challenges. Um, a lot of autonomy, which is wonderful. But to be honest, after I'd been a country director now for about five or six years, there were just a lot of parts of the role that I wasn't as engaged with, and 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 you know, I, I wanted to do something I found more more exciting and engaging. And I and I was thinking like the one thing that I will do in my free time, and it doesn't feel like work. Um, is listen to behavioral science podcasts <laughs> and just like absorb behavioral science information. And I started thinking, well, you know, this is something that Save the Children could definitely use. Um, maybe I should start moving in this in this direction. Um, there was another there was another example I think that helped propel me to this when I was uh, when I was in Lebanon. I was leading an innovation team. And we would always start these meetings um, with an icebreaker question to get to know each other because they were from all different parts of the country, the staff that were in the innovation team. And one of the questions that I um, asked during this meeting was, okay, if you couldn't be an international aid worker, what would be your other career? And, you know, people in the room said, um, I think it was architect and teacher and nurse and doctor. And I said, behavioral scientist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow it's like coming I, out of the closet <laughs> and then i had to explain what that was of course because nobody knows <laughs> what but i think that that also really got me thinking um so it was all just it was kind of percolating in my head and, and eventually i think I, w- I was actually sitting i was sitting in a regional meeting in in jordan and it was during a session i won't mention which one but it was during one a session that i found incredibly boring <laughs> And so I started just just jotting down notes of what like a nudge unit for Save the Children could do and what we would focus on and how we would look at these internal systems and we would do this for programs and and what we could produce. And basically, like during this meeting, I I sketched out about um, about six pages of notes. And it was I think it was from about that time that I that I decided, okay, I'm going to see if I can make it my mission to create a Save the Children uh, nudge unit. So it was about, it was from that moment until about, it took about 14 months to then um, launch Cubic in, uh, in April, 2020. That's a so pretty quick what, turnaround. Yeah, well, tell us what you did in those 14 months. How, I mean, it, it sounds fast, but obviously there was a lot that went into that. So what, <laughs> what did uh, 14 months of work of trying to convince a leadership team that probably didn't even know what a nudge was to putting in a, a nudge unit in into the organization. What did that entail? Yes. Yeah, so, so certainly five or six pages of notes won't get you that far. I can tell you <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Um, and, and the first thing, I mean, honestly, the first thing I had to do was figure out how do you do this? <laughs> so I started, started reaching out to um, behavioral scientists that I could find and uh, fortunately, there's actually an independent behavioral science organization in Lebanon called uh, Nudge Lebanon, founded by Fadi Maki. And I actually, I contacted him. I said, can I come talk to you? <laughs> and spoke to him and found out all about Nudge Lebanon and what they do. I also started doing a lot of um, 
research on what what is included in a nudge, nudge unit. How do you um, how do you structure them? What do they focus on? And I think the real um, real pivotal moment was actually um, Nudge Lebanon ran a behavioral science conference in it was either March or April um, 2019 called BX Arabia. And so I went to BX Arabia um, with my five or six pages of notes and just listened, took more notes and, and quite boldly went up to anyone that I thought was interesting and inspiring. And so, and people embraced me so warmly. This is one thing that I love about the behavioral science community is, is I met so many people that were willing to help. And when I told them I want to create a nudge unit for Save the Children, they were like, oh, great. Let me know, you know, how I can help. Um, so I met people like the CEO of the Basara Center, who at that time was James Mansell. I met uh, Faisal Naru from the OECD. I met um, Josh Martin from Ideas42. Um, and all of these people ended up acting as my kind of informal advisors as I was creating a proposal, creating the structure, um, you know, troubleshooting different things. Um, so I think that was really instrumental to getting things moving. And I also, in addition to this kind of informal behavioral science advisory group, I found a number of senior Save the Children leaders who I really trusted their, their judgment and their leadership and experience, and they were also my advisory group. So basically this informal group of six people helped me shape the proposal and the pitch um, and then that at least got it to um, pitch stage, which I think happened a, a few months later. And at pitch stage is when I started. Fortunately, there was a, a global meeting for Save the Children um, in Oxford. And I, I basically probably spoke to 15 or 20 leaders around the world trying to sell them on uh, why Save the Children should create uh, Cubic in the Center for Utilizing Behavioral Insights for Children. You you just keep going because this is this is uh, <laughs> fascinating to get this level of detail. Go keep going. Well, yes. Yeah, so so one thing is, I thought, okay, if I have this great, well researched proposal, you know, I had a ten page, beautiful, you know, citing the World Bank, you know, citing the Behavioral Insights team, showing the different tools, showing all these pictures. I have this great proposal. Spent all this work on this proposal. And then I went to Oxford and I was speaking, okay, my first meeting was with our international program director, a very senior person, as well as the international like head of program quality and impact. And what I realized during that meeting is that I had not prepared at all to pitch it. <laughs> I created a wonderful document, but I couldn't explain it in 30 minutes. Um, so, so I think that was one major learning for me. I, I, I realized that, okay, they were very kind to me and they said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. But the other thing they said besides that sounds like a good idea is, okay, now you have to raise the money. Mm. And I think I had kind of assumed if I just have a, a great idea, they'll see the merits and they will just hand me a few hundred thousand dollars in there, which was, which was incredibly uh, naive. But anyway, from this kind of failed conversation started the next, um, the next point about fundraising. So I then, okay, I've, I, these people think it's a good idea. I found some other people who think it's a good idea, but now I have to raise the funds to make it happen. And so when did, when did it actually get started? And then where, where are you guys today? Yes, so um, we officially launched in April uh, 2020, in about mid-April 2020. Um, I say launch lightly because launch was actually me starting in the role and a couple other <laughs> team members joined um, joined about two or three months uh, later. So, so yes, we, we launched in, in April and basically the, um, I was fortunate in the fundraising department because the um, Save the Children has an internal innovation accelerator process where one can pitch ideas and go through this quite robust process to see um, if we can win some internal seed funding. And so because of this process, as well as um, basically our innovative leaders in Asia, um, I was able to, to start Cubic because Cubic is hosted by our, our Asia regional office. Um, so I was supposed to, in April, I was supposed to be in, um, be in Vietnam for this new role. <laughs> but something was going on in April. Yes, yeah. April. What was that? There was something going on. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, um, this may be more detailed than you want to know, but basically, yes, we had a we planned to move to Vietnam. We found a house, we found a school for our child. So we were we had tickets, we had visas. We were all planning to move from Lebanon to Vietnam at the end of March, 
And then in mid-March, um, because of the pandemic, uh, the, the airport in Beirut shut down, the airport in Hanoi shut down, our visas were canceled. Uh, and so all of our plans changed. Um, and for, fortunately, we did make it to Canada, where my, my husband's family is from. Um, but uh, yes, we never were actually able to make it to Vietnam because of the pandemic, because Vietnam has some of the strictest entry requirements um, around the world. And so now you're in Uganda yes. and the, the center has been up. What are you guys working on now? What are some of the, what are some of the pro- problems that you're trying to, to solve? Sure. Um, so we have a number of projects in different stages of development. Um, one of the ones I'm most excited about is in the Philippines. So our our Philippines team wanted to focus on how to encourage parents to more positively engage with their children, um, as well as refrain from from violent discipline. Um, And of course, when they told me this um, previously and and they reiterated it after the pandemic, I was thinking, how do we influence parents and change parental behavior when we can't even really meet them because of the pandemic? Uh, So we started doing a a broad literature review to see what kinds of methods have been shown to impact parental engagement uh, remotely. And we were able to determine through that, as well as another conference, um, find out about the the tips by text method by Dr. Susanna Loeb, who is now at, uh, she was previously at Stanford and now at Brown University. And she has created this method of sending these behaviorally informed text messages to parents And it gives parents really concrete things to do with their children, such as, okay, you're at the grocery store, start counting the different pieces of fruit you put into your your cart and ask your child to count with you, something like this, because it's a program specifically for children three to five years old. Um, So she had proved, yes, so she'd shown in uh, in a number of randomized control trials in the U.S. that this does have an impact on children's literacy and numeracy gains, particularly with lower resource parents. Um, so fortunately, I reached out to her and she was very welcoming and she um, agreed to let us adapt tips by text for the Philippines. So we then um, we translated all the text messages. We also added different text message messages, ones based on um, COVID-19 protective behaviors, as well as parental well-being um, and uh, social emotional learning. So we, we translated them, adapted them, um, like along with uh, teachers from the Philippines who could tell us if they were relevant. Uh, and then we, uh, we planned a randomized control trial um, with two arms, actually. So one arm is just the tips. So they're uh, receiving, the parents are receiving the tips for 40 weeks. And the other arm is receiving the tips plus a, uh, a bi-monthly phone call of just about 10 minutes basically where a, um, a, an enumerator will call the parent and say, how are the tips going? Which do you like? Which do you not like? Do you need any help? You know, great job. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so this is um, this involves 1,800 parents right now. Uh, and we're wow. just, I think, we're, yeah. <laughs> we'd, actually, we'd actually wanted, um, we'd wanted, I think it was about 3,000, 2,500 or 3,000. Um, but we only had a, a certain uh, number on the list that we were able to call. Um, and, and, and believe it or not, people don't like picking up the phone if they don't recognize the number. <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> wow. Yes. But, uh, but anyway, so, so we'll be um, testing it. Uh, I think that about in October we'll be doing the online assessment. Uh, and we'll be able to see if it does have an impact on children's literacy and numeracy and gains then. Oh, so That's fascinating. Can, can, yeah, can you go back to just the beginning of this? This is about uh, non-violent uh, discipline. Is, is is that correct? Tell, can, can you just set up the situation just with just a little bit more detail about what is the problem that you're you're hoping to solve? Hmm. The problem is that around the world, I mean, even in the United States, but also in in especially in in the global South, um, parents. Often, uh, often use what what would save the children calls um, violent discipline, which is basically hitting or, or spanking your child. Also, verbal you know verbal abuse is you know shouting at them or yelling at them or berating them. Um, so, so this is one thing that our team in the Philippines really wanted to look at. They said, listen, um, both with teachers and parents, you know, we do all these trainings where we tell people, okay, don't. don't 
please don't hit your children. It's bad for them. It's bad for your relationship with them. It's going to have negative impacts. Um, these are some of the other things you can do. Um, please do it. But they had noticed after years that this often did not change behavior. Um, so <laughs> Imagine, imagine yeah. telling them. This is my shock face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that being said, I, I cannot like to be very to be very honest with you. I do have hopes that our um, our intervention will lead to literacy and numeracy gains. It might lead to gains around positive discipline, but I, I can't say that for certain. You know, text messages alone yeah. are it, it's a very difficult behavior to change. So uh, thank you uh, for that. I, I appreciate just just a little more detail. And I, it's also uh, humbling to hear you talk about sort of the, the reality of, of the high aspirations that you have and sort of your willingness to go, well, look, we're, we're trying to, you know, change the world here. Small, small changes can be a good thing, right? How do you, how do you kind of get your head around that on a, on, because I mean, being in Lebanon, I, I, again, I just think about the, the size and scope of a tragedy like that, just a, a incredible, huge problem. Uh, how do you wake up every day and say, okay, of the 1.2 million pe people who are refugees and suffering, let's just go after these six. Let's just try mm -hmm. and get these five people, two people, one person better. How, how do you do that? Uh, you know, I used to really struggle with that. Um, I remember it most acutely, actually, when I was in, in Pakistan. Um, I can't remember exactly the population, but I think it was somewhere around 100, 160 million. You can, you can look it up or <laughs> Google it now. But it was a huge number of people in Pakistan, and so many of them are living in just desperate poverty, so many women, you know, never learn to read. I'm pretty sure it's more than half the population never learn to read, never leave the house. So seeing this amount of devastation um, and then seeing it being hit by massive disasters. For example, when I was there, there was the um, 2010 uh, floods that uh, mm. affected 20 million people across the country. You know, seeing this can just be really um, soul destroying, but we just have to focus on what we can do and every person that we, we can reach. Um, and I think, um, I mean, I, I didn't know this at the time, but I think this is what um, some researchers, for example, like Paul Slovic are trying to tell people to do that don't, you know, don't give up just because you think that the challenge is so, is so huge, you know, in, in terms of um, what is it called? Psychic numbing. Psychic numbing is the term when you, when you feel so overwhelmed and you, and you, hear such huge numbers that you no longer consider them to be individuals. Um, so I think it was really just focusing is like, listen, even if we're just re reaching, you know, 20,000 people here, 50,000 people here, they're still somewhat better off because we were able to provide them some, some support. Well, and that is amazing in and of itself. 20,000, 50,000 people is a lot. I know relative to 160 million or 20 million people impacted, it seems like a small drop in the bucket, but that is a significant piece. And I think, you know, this is not equivalent by any means, but I remember early on in my career doing a lot of work with teams and various different pieces. You'd be doing this work and you'd be spending all this time and trying to do these interventions. And then you'd realize, gosh, maybe maybe 20% of the people got something out of this. And and you'd, I would just feel devastated. And I'd be going, ah, you know, I missed these 80%. And then uh, there was some epiphany that I had that it was like, you know, at one point it was like, even if it's 20%, even if it's 10%, even if it's one person that is has, has a better work life after whatever the intervention I do, that's one person, that's 10% of whoever we touch that now have a better opportunity. And, and granted, it, it is not equivalent by any means, you know, helping people have a better work life versus, you know, making sure that children aren't, aren't being violently uh, abused or wearing a helmet so they're saving their lives and, and other factors on that. But the the impact that you can have on, on any one individual, and this is what I love about just A, you know, the Save the Children in in particular, but all of the the... Uh, organizations around the world that are looking at uh, helping people that are in these situations, mm. you're, you're making a difference. And, and I think that's really, really positive. And I love, I love the idea that behavioral science is starting to play a role 
you know, you guys are doing this. Basara is is doing it, and you you mentioned you know uh, Nudge Lebanon and some of these others who are who are working on these large scale elements to really make a difference in people's lives. And so I just commend you, commend all of the people that are out there doing it. Um, and and I do think you said earlier that the the behavioral science community has been really welcoming for for you. And I think that's something that is very true. And so I urge anybody who has an interest in this, reach out to us. Um, we'll either, you know, connect you to the people that we know, or we'll we'll try to make sure that we can help in, in whatever way we can, because I think it's a it's a great thing moving forward. Oh, thanks. That's that's really fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll get off my soapbox now. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll let Tim ask a question. I, yeah. I do want to um, mention that we do reach more than 22,000 children. I think globally save the children, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was last year, it was, it was something like 44 million. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a few more than that. But, um, but, but behavioral science is a new approach for us. And um, it, is, it, it is getting a lot of traction, I think, within the organization. Um, one thing, one, I think, small success that we've had in, in Cubic's 10 months of existence is we wanted to introduce, introduce the field uh, to our colleagues, but do so in a way that isn't heavy. So I started writing um, basically one, one email per week called In a Nutshell, and it's um, basically about one behavioral science principle in only 150 words. So it ends up being a few, a few sentences. Um, and so I, you know, every time I write about, what was it last week? I think it was because of your podcast. I was listening to something on your podcast. And so last week I wrote about the mere, mere exposure effect, um, writing about friction, writing about different cognitive biases and heuristics, as well as different tools that you can, you, you can use. And there's been a, a really a lot of appetite within the organization for this kind of, this kind of learning. So Allison, what, what are some of the new projects that you're working on? So one that we've been developing over the last few months is a partnership with the, the Bissara Center for Behavioral Economics and Common Thread. And it's looking at how to increase vaccination uptake in countries in the global, se- global south. Um, it's called VaxUp. <laughs> and it, it's going through a really robust, you know, formative research phase where we're determining the, be- the barriers, developing our behavioral hypothesis, then working with hopefully national governments, as well as our teams, our Save the Children Busara teams on the ground to develop behaviorally informed solutions to these challenges. And then uh, finally rolling out these, challenge- these uh, solutions with, with our teams and with the national governance. Now, this is just starting. We just began a pilot in Kenya a couple weeks ago. Um, and we're hoping to start a pilot in the Philippines within the next few weeks as well. Um, and that's kind of just, uh, that's the first phase. Um, we've secured a very small amount of money for that um, so far, but we actually need to raise a couple more million to get it uh, to get it to go. So if you do have any um, wealthy behavioral science listeners, do send them my way. <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody out there that can just you know write a check tomorrow. So we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully if you're listening, just go ahead, contact us. We'll get you in touch with Allison. So awesome. so the, the the pilot. So you're you're trying to increase uh, vaccination. Is that specifically around COVID, or is it vaccinations in general? Yes, it is specifically around COVID um, because one of the one of the things in terms from a child's perspective, until their lives can get back to normal, you know, until more people get vaccinated, their children are not going, going to be going back to school. They cannot have normal lives. They cannot restart their educations or have the kind of social engagement that they need. So even though the, the uh, COVID nineteen hasn't impacted children as dramatically in terms of their health, it's 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 um, very severely affected their access to to services and to protection. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic! That is fantastic news to hear. Uh, you know, we we believe in the, in all the same stuff. You know, we're part of the same tribe, I guess, in in that way. <laughs> uh, but I would like to see if we could talk a little bit about. Don't stop believing. And <laughs> before we, so just just teeing that up. Before we actually get to that, what's on your playlist? Has has COVID has the pandemic changed? What's your list? What kind of music you're listening to as you travel around the around the world? 
this is what happened. When I decided I would boldly decide to try to move into the behavioral science realm without the without a PhD, um, I decided, okay, I need to use all of my free time to learn about this. And so I actually made a, a decision that I'm no longer going to listen to music. I'm only going to listen to podcasts and I'm no longer going to read novels. I'm only going wow. to read behavioral science books. So because this is about the only free time that I had as, you know, a busy country director as, as well as a mom. Um, so I actually kind of stopped listening to music a couple, a couple years ago. So that's, that's why I don't feel very well prepared. Um, I don't really have an active playlist. The only exception is, um, just seems like it's a typical behavioral science response is when I want to feel really excited and engaged, I do listen to Hamilton. <laughs> Ah, wow, wow. <laughs> Which, Hamilton I have, has come up multiple yes. times on, on yes. the show. There's lots of people that, that listen to that, oftentimes because they have kids around the age that uh, listen mm. to Hamilton and that, that's mm. the playlist that they get. So. Yes. Well, I, got to see it, cool. I got to see it in London in 2019. And um, yeah, so before the pandemic, obviously, and I just yeah made such an impression. That's fantastic. That is. Okay, so c can you tell us about uh, Don't Stop Believing and, and where Journey fits into your life story? <laughs> yeah, so when my husband and I decided to get married, the first we decided we would take some dancing lessons to prepare for the first, uh, the first dance. And I think after about eight weeks of dancing lessons, we knew it was a futile endeavor. <laughs> So, <laughs> I am right there with you. I, I, yeah. So instead, my husband had the idea that, okay, let's create a music video. Um, and he loves classic rock. So he's like, let's do Don't Stop Believing. And so we actually, a friend of ours in Bangkok, Tim Sirota, is a, is a filmmaker. And we actually recruited him to create a music video of us around Bangkok, um, lip syncing basically to Don't Stop Believing. And so this ended up being a... Um, this ended up being a surprise at our wedding. We went up to do the first dance, started dancing, and then instead this music video came on. So, so yes, if you want to see us lip singing to Don't Stop Believing, um, there you go. I love that it, it, it it's super pro. First of all, it is like <laughs> the ultimate in, it's like a movie, which is fantastic. It is absolutely the music video. But you're on the you're on the subway, you're on the streets, you're you're in cafes, you're inside, you're outside, you're in the rain, you're everywhere. You're passing each other by, and it's this <laughs> kind of this whole little like, are they going to meet? Are they not going to meet? Oh, it's all this cool stuff. Oh. Yes. The, well, credit, like, to, credit to my husband who I did most of the planning as well as the talent of our filmmaker Tim. But I do have to say before before in my international aid work career um i uh, studied theater and english in my undergraduate days and so i did ah. it was, i enjoyed getting to use my theater skills uh, a little bit <laughs> wow okay so That's maybe fantastic. we should look for you at the golden globes in the future <laughs> <laughs> allison thank you this has been very very informative uh, again applaud the work that you guys do I'm super excited to to hear how the uh, how Cubic uh, grows and expands and the in, impact that you have within right. Save the Children, as well as kind of in, on a larger scale. Like, is this going to be transferred into other uh, NGOs and, and other nonprofits as as they're looking at how they can really change the way that they're doing things in order to make it more efficient and to actually change behaviors that are necessary. So thank you for what you're doing. Really appreciate it. And thank you for being on Behavioral Groups. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been my absolute pleasure. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Allison, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our socially influenced, cognitively crazed, charitable brains that are just amazed at <laughs> the clever, wonderful ways that behavioral science is 
actually making a difference in the world. Okay, that's the biggest introduction to a grooving session that we've ever had. You, you were know, impressed with Allison. If I had, if I had more time, I would have done shorter, but I didn't. So I just I went with the long. <laughs> to paraphrase Mr. Mark Twain or whoever actually really said that, but no. Uh, so this was a fascinating conversation, and it so refreshing, so so very refreshing to see that there are people out there in the world who are taking these insights that we love and are learning about all the time from behavioral science and not using it just to make more profits or to make their habits more uh, aligned with their objectives and helping them lose weight or whatever else it is on a personal level, but they are putting these to use to help those people in the world that need it most. And Allison is definitely one of those people. Yeah, I think about one of the first examples she talked about was the idea of getting kids to wear helmets. Yeah, I think it was in Thailand. And uh, so they use like a watermelon, you know, yeah. first of all, like to make it fun for kids. But then they had the kids write down uh, on on leaves, I think it was, uh, you know, to, they had, uh, they, they said, you know, you've got to write down the benefits of, of wearing the helmet on a leaf. And then they posted those leaves in, in the schoolroom. So that it was, you know, this pre-commitment device, it's pro-social, you know, it's a social thing because they're doing it in front of everybody else. And I, there's a vividness just, with the watermelon. Uh, there's all yeah. sorts of behavioral concepts that come into play. And yeah. the idea that if you can apply these principles to this type of work, you're saving lives. You are saving kids' lives yeah. in ways that would not have happened or not to the extent that they happen if you would not have applied these behavioral science principles, which I think yeah. it just makes me feel, it gives me little glowy fun little <laughs> things in my tummy. It's so good to think about this is the opportunity for kids to be able to grow up healthy enough so that they can become astronauts and scientists and, you know, politicians and, you know, run companies and be parents and do all those kinds of things. All we got to get things the going for the politicians that you said. And then I was well, like, oh, no, yeah, well, there you go. No, politicians are really important and we should have more and better politicians. Better. That's my, my, my take. All yeah. right. All right. So, Tim, what did you find very fascinating about this conversation? I mean, there's tons to be fascinated by, but what do we want to groove on? Oh, well, I'm, I'm just I'm such a fan. Oh, my gosh. I'm just I'm just like I feel like I just want to genuflect at her initiative. And, you know, because you want to jump out of airplanes and, and OK, not that part, <laughs> not that part. I, I, I so admire the fact that she's like a club member, but um, that's no. Uh, but uh, talking about cleverness, it's it, the first thing that really struck me is her cleverness, like her her willingness to put something together that wasn't together right that she's out in the in thailand and she's she's you know got this job and she's you know the country manager and she's helping get kids you know safer so that they can live longer and then she has a conversation with somebody about behavioral science and then she's like oh wait a minute that's a cool idea i wonder if i could apply that to my work and then she figured out how to do that yeah then she just went out and she just started putting things together. She started and she didn't know. She started talking to the people in the field. She started reading a little bit. And she 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 wasn't a PhD. She wasn't, a, you know, <laughs> um, you know, in this big corporate job. She yeah, just that went had a behavioral of, science unit that she then joined. Right. It was it was this idea of creating this behavioral science team inside yes. of this larger organization, which I think is one of the pieces I want to talk about. But I love this yeah. idea of cleverness and this idea that it's this confluence of two different pieces. And I think that is a fascinating way of thinking about how ideas happen. And obviously, we've talked to some people about innovation in various different pieces, but this idea of being clever, of joining the concept of behavioral science with the work that she was doing and seeing that there is a connection or some value in that. And that yeah. I think is having the ability to look at that opportunity 
is something that not everybody, I, I, it, let me take this back because I was going to say that not everybody has, but I, I want to couch that because I think everybody can. I just don't think everybody does. And it's this mindset of looking for ways to create value and to bring different ideas together. It goes to the open mindset uh, element that we talked yeah. with uh, Olivier Sibonet uh, uh, about in in that episode. So anyway, that that I thought was fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, it is. You know, the other thing about, uh, again, you're talking about getting a nudge unit started. Uh, uh, and it kind of brings into this this aspect of cleverness. You know, it was it started by a, a, an icebreaker question. Yeah, I what mean, that was kind of the trigger, right? Right. Like, how simple is that? And you can't you can't make this stuff up, right? And you can't recreate that in your own world. You can't just have an icebreaker question of, you know, what we, would you be doing if you didn't have your job now? And then just all of a sudden be, oh, I, I'm going to do something new. But it's just great that she acted on it, you know, that, yes. that she had passion to say, I think things could be better. And and really got distracted by the question, by the icebreaker question. Yeah, to to the detriment of actually listening in the conference and writing oh, five yeah. pages of notes on why this is value. But that that is a key piece that you just mentioned: the idea of passion, the idea of getting something started, and moving forward with the concepts that you come up with in your brain, and making sure that that happens. And she had to put together. So she had to learn about behavioral science. Right. She right. got excited about it, had that passion. She wanted to go out and figure out how to apply this to the work. And so then she had to figure out, well, what do we what are the objectives? Why would why would Save the Children be interested in having a nun junior? What's the benefit? Put all of that together. And then she would have to define the outcomes. And then the piece that I loved is she had put all the stuff together and then she had the opportunity to present it to the executives. And she goes, I totally had all the stuff, but it wasn't ready for a pitch. I didn't have any clue as to how to actually pitch this. And so she had to refine that. She had to refine how she talks about it inside the organization. And I think for anybody that's out there that has an interest in this and they want to apply it inside their work, you can always apply it to the work that you're doing, right? That's one of the things, hopefully, that we're helping provide some insight into different ways to apply these principles to your job and to your life. But if you want to take it bigger, if you want to take it to your team, if you want to take it to your functional area, if you want to take it to your business unit, if you want to start up a whole separate unit, those are different factors. And I think Allison, the, the, journey that she went through can be informative. This idea of starting with the idea, researching what it is, why it's important, researching what it would mean, outlining what you would need to have in order to make that happen. Those are all really key factors if you're looking to do something like that in your workplace. This might be one of the reasons that we connect with Allison so readily is because her journey in some ways is sort of like the the beginning of behavioral grooves, you know, <laughs> right? Well, so, so that's another whole aspect of this, right? There's, there's yeah. that night, the, the naiveness of, of the, oh yeah, we can just start a, you know, behavioral yeah. science unit inside of this large <laughs> multi-million dollar organization that has footprints around the globe. And yeah, no problem, right? There's a, there's a nativity there. There's a nativity about, oh yeah, we can just start a podcast and hey, it's pretty easy, yeah. right? We'll, we'll just do it. And exactly. I think, there's, I think there's a value in that to a certain degree. I mean, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. It, it's, it was fantastic that we didn't know what we were doing. That when you said, <laughs> you said, we've got this guest, you know, going to be speaking at our meetup, who is this terrific researcher, James Heyman, which I think is episode like one or two. It's episode one. Episode it's one. Episode James one. Heyman. Because James it Heyman. was the second meetup that we did. It was the second right? meetup, but it was the first podcast. And you just said, well, Tim, you're a musician. You've got all this recording equipment. Why don't, why don't we just record it? And I said, yes. 
which was <laughs> crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And it was very casually. You just said, well, we can turn it into a podcast. And I'm like, sure. I, we had no idea what we were doing, but How we How hard learned. could it be? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> right. And we, and we learned about it. And I think that that is absolutely fantastic that, that naivete was actually central to, to that. And it, it might actually tie back to Shankar Vedantin's useful delusions. Yes. That we, we both sort of had this delusion, like this won't be that hard. <laughs> Little did we know. Anyway, Little, no, but yeah. but I think that so going back to, to Shankar, right, and talking about the, the useful delusions, I think there is a time when we need to look at base rates and understand the full probabilities. Take oh, Annie yeah. Duke's information and apply it, right? We need to have that. We we can't go around, we can't just have delusions. We need to have useful delusions, right? <laughs> yes, so yeah. there are those moments when we need to, to do that. But I, if I look at what, I mean, not only the podcast, but but you, you and me starting our own businesses, right? I know when I started the Lantern Group and I thought, oh, this will be, you know, relatively easy. I can just continue to do the same things that I've I've been doing in my work. I can just now do those outside, and and obviously, when I was selling them in internally, not internally, but with a company, you know, sales came easy, and I didn't think through fully. I mean, I knew this. I knew I would have to go out and sell. Yes. Yeah. But I didn't, you know, I'm going, well, I'm, I'm pretty decent at selling, but what I'm not good at is cold calling and getting those opportunities to present themselves, which <laughs> right. I had a whole team doing that, right? There was a whole sales force out there doing that before. And I just didn't really think through, well, how hard that can be. Can I just put an ad in, you know, the local magazine and you know, all these calls will be coming in. Can I just put a Facebook post out there and people will be knocking down the door for behavioral science services? No, that's not how this works. Maybe you shouldn't have put an ad in horse and hound. You know? <laughs> well, you know, I, I thought about the auto trader, you know, one, and I thought horse and hound sounded a little better, but uh, maybe you're right. You know, I was just going for the cheapest ad, ad rates and I figured, yeah. Well, and this also ties back into the idea when it comes to like setting up a nudge unit within your organization, you don't have to do it alone. And you could bring in consultants like the Lantern Group or Behavior Alchemy, by yeah. the way, just as a, as a little plug, you could, you could hire somebody like us to actually help get that started through working on specific projects yeah. and demonstrating value demonstrating that value but then also i mean part of what you've done this and i've done this is we've we've trained people so so yeah. particularly if you're trying to get this to to your team or to your functional unit or as a part within the organization uh you you know we can come in and actually train those people on some behavioral science principles you're working on a project right now that is doing like three webinars to help you know, people become yeah. certified in this. One of the first projects we ever worked on together back when you were still at, at, at BI was, was doing a, a four hour session with the executive team of a large mm. pharmaceutical company. Right. And right. we brought to them, it was four hours of behavioral science mixed in with some incentive work, but it was two plus three hours of talking about, behavioral science and why the organization needed to be thinking about it and what the value was and some of the different principles of behavioral science and some of the biases that are impacting how they work and get things done, which was fascinating because after that, um, you know, they brought Dan Ariely in and uh, <laughs> I, I was just thinking like we did such a good job. They hired Dan. <laughs> yeah. You know, there you go. It's, it's uh, he charged a, a lot more than we did too. So, um, but, 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 but the, the, thinking about the way that you can, you know, this train the trainer that's just working on specific projects, and this could be in HR or sales or marketing or UX or CX or innovation, product development. Behavioral sciences are, are so universally horizontal that pretty much anywhere people are involved, there is an application for behavioral science. 
Yeah. And, and I, and I, so I want to encourage people to feel okay about, well, I've got this idea, but I'm not sure what to do with it. Well, give us a call. Yeah. I think that's great. Going back to, to Allison and the work that she has done, I am just super thrilled that this is being brought into save the children that these insights are going to be applied in a way that is bringing value as you know we talked about earlier the most marginalized children in the globe and that we're bringing some good into the world which is the facet about behavioral science that we've talked about ethics in the past you know, I get, I get really worried about just trying to apply this to make more money and to do different various things and that, but when you're thinking about this as lifting kids out of poverty, saving their lives, impacting the health and well-being of these kids throughout the, the globe, that, that makes me feel, gives me a little yeah. goosebumps on my arms and little warm butterflies in my tummy. Yeah, I was I was educated by Jesuits, and lots and lots of times the discussion when we got into morality and ethics, the model was was repeated over and over, and that's do the least amount of harm to the most vulnerable, hmm. and that that model has continued to be available to me, and and I think about that as a as a simple moral foundation, and Allison is not just doing the least amount of harm to the most vulnerable. She is absolutely enabling and enhancing the lives of the most vulnerable. And it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So folks, uh, hang on for just a minute. We're going to come back. Actually, I'm going to come back in just a minute with a bonus track and groove idea for the week. This is Tim with the bonus track and groove idea for the week. In this episode, we spoke with the very inspirational Allison Zelkowitz. She's spent most of her career working in nonprofits, so being a person who's out to make the world a better place isn't really new to her. But when she saw the power of behavioral science, she realized that her work could be much more effective. She shared with us stories about how she came to see the power of behavioral science, how a little bit of cleverness and persistence pays off, and how her naivete ended up being an asset to her in creating the cubic unit at Save the Children. And she did all of this without a PhD in behavioral science and without a high-powered job in a massive multinational firm with millions of dollars at her disposal. She's creating behavioral interventions on a shoestring among the poorest of the poor communities in the world. And if she can do it, I want to encourage you to give some thought to how you can do it. Now it's time for our groove idea for the week. So when you think about Allison's work, it's clear that one of her first priorities is serving the community. Kurt and I imagine that many of you are involved in charitable, nonprofit, or pro-social organizations, either as board members or volunteers or donors. And what we'd like you to consider is this. How can you improve the lives of the people served by the organizations you support through some sort of application of behavioral science? What sort of thing could you do that could make that organization a little more effective at helping the people who need to be served? As always, please let us know what you're up to. Drop us a line, post social media. We'd love to hear what you're up to. And with that, folks, it's time to say thank you for listening to this episode. And thank you to listening to Behavioral Grooves. We appreciate your support. We appreciate your ratings and reviews. And we appreciate your sharing a good word with a friend or a colleague. And with that, we encourage you that this week you go out and find your groove. <music>